The Thinking Long and Short podcast is brought to you by Perfect Spiral. In this football podcast, Joe Miglio and John McCarthy take you on a football journey as they discuss the sport in depth. This 365-day, 24-7 football podcast discusses everything NFL. Off-season, draft, rumors, training camp, fantasy football, and of course the season. If you're a fantasy football junkie like I am, you need to listen to this podcast. You can get it anywhere you get podcasts, most specifically on Spotify, Perfect Spiral. The Thinking Long and Short podcast is also brought to you by True North Market Research. The Thinking Long and Short Investment Professionals newsletter is a tool for financial advisors and individual investors to stay current on financial market conditions. Investment professionals can use the insightful thoughts provided in the newsletter to keep their clients well-informed and properly positioned to achieve their financial goals. Stay up to date with financial market commentary, investment analysis, and trading thoughts, and subscribe to the newsletter at truenorthmarketresearch.substack.com. Before we get started, if you like the podcast, wherever you're listening to it, whether on YouTube or Spotify, follow the channel and give a like uh, to the podcast. It really helps with the algorithms to get the podcast out there. With that, we'll get right into it. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ fell slightly on Friday, but notched weekly gains after a blowout jobs report for the month of July. Now, the bond market also reacted very, very heavily to this news. The U.S. 10-year Treasury yield jumped after the jobs report came out and blew past expectations. Oil prices ended the week at multi-month lows on recession fears, and the dollar jumped after the U.S. jobs report crushed expectations as well. I will get into the jobs report that came out on Friday morning for non-farm payrolls in a bit. But first, I want to cover some of the economic data that came out earlier in the week. On Monday, we got the ISM manufacturing PMI, ISM manufacturing prices, and construction spending month over month. Now, in regards to the ISM data that came out for manufacturing, there we got a reading of 52.8 versus what the expectation was of 52.3. Now, anything above 50 shows expansion as opposed to contraction of economic activity. So this came in slightly positive and it was taken as good news by the markets. Another thing that was taken as good news by the markets was the manufacturing prices, which came down. There we were expecting a reading of 74.9. Instead, we got a reading of just 60, which shows that some inflation pressures in the supply chain are starting to mitigate. So the markets took that as very, very positive news. What was not positive news was the construction spending numbers month over month. There we were expecting construction spending to increase last month by 0.3%. Instead, we got a reduction of 1.1%. So construction spending is coming way down. And that's again, because the mortgage market is having trouble as interest rates continue to move up. And also a lot of the home buying business has slowed down substantially. So immediately on this news release, the ITB, which is the Home Builders ETF, collapsed over 3%. Again, weakness in the housing market and the home housing market in the home building sector in general. Now on Tuesday we got the Jolts jobs opening numbers for the past month. There we were expecting to have job openings of 10.99 million. Instead, we came in less than that with only 10.7 million job openings. Now of course I say only 10.7 million job openings in quotations, because that's still a substantial amount of job openings in the economy. But if you look at the way the data is going over the past several months, the trend has been to the downside. So last month, there were 11.25 million job openings reported. This month, there were only 10.7 million job openings reported. So we lost almost a million job openings in just one month. Now, of course, some of that is because we added a ton of jobs in the jobs report, which I'll cover in a few minutes. But we see a lot of job openings are going away. Again, we have a number of major companies that are announcing slowdowns in hiring, uh, most notably Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook. 
a lot of the tech companies, you have a lot of the consumer discretionary companies are starting to scale back because the consumer is struggling to make ends meet. And so we see a lot of bad spending data coming in, which is causing a lot of these tech companies and a lot of the smaller businesses to slow their hiring down because they're starting to expect that this recession is going to get deeper and last for a longer period of time than most had initially expected. But again, I covered these job openings numbers a couple weeks ago in saying that most of these 10.7 million job openings are not real job openings. What's going on here, if you missed the point that I made, is a lot of companies that have job openings listed on their website or on the, uh, some sort of job hiring website like Indeed, they are keeping those job openings there so applications continue to come in, but they have no real uh, means of actually hiring these workers, right? So you have, if you go, for example, again, you go to Tesla's website. Tesla is currently on a hiring freeze. They announced that they're no longer hiring any more salaried workers for the time being because Elon Musk is predicting that we're going to be in recession for 18 months. But you go to Tesla's website, they have hundreds of job openings listed on their website so that people can continue to apply to the jobs. And so this way, once Tesla thinks that it's uh, necessary for them to start hiring people again, they have tons of applications which they can go through to try and pick which employees they want to hire. But those job openings aren't real job openings, even though they're listed on their website. So I believe a big portion of this 10.7 million job openings that's listed in the JOLTS report are not true job openings. So again, I think the labor market is much weaker than people think it is. And it's much weaker for a lot of reasons, again, which I'll get to in a few minutes with the non-farm payroll report, which came out on Friday. But again, on Wednesday, we got more. PMI data for manufacturing. We also got factory orders month over month came in. Now, on the ISM services PMI, we got a better than expected number came in. We were expecting 53.5. Again, anything above 50 would show an expansion in economic activity. Instead, we beat that expectation. We got 56.7 on the reading. So that's good for services being produced in the economy, and also factory orders month over month came in much better than expected. There we were expecting only an increase of 1.3, but we instead got an increase of 2.0, which shows that a lot of factories are ordering stuff that they're now going to have to resell to the end consumer, which means a lot of factories are forecasting that sales are going to pick up in the foreseeable future. A big part of that is the auto sector, Auto sales came in this week as well. Uh, for the past month, there were 13.4 million auto sales in the economy, which is where the expectation was. But you see that a lot of companies still have not bought into the recession narrative. They still continue to believe that the consumer is strong, the economy is strong, there's no need to start laying off a lot of workers. And I think as we head deeper into this recession and that narrative is proven wrong, a lot more layoffs are coming in the future, and there's going to be a bigger slowdown in factory orders, in manufacturing data as we move forward into the fall and winter months. Now, Thursday, we got unemployment claims and the trade balance. Now, the trade balance, we were expecting a deficit of $80.5 billion. Instead, we only got a deficit of $79.6 billion. So we came in slightly above expectations, but again, a $79.6 billion a month trade deficit. That means we're running trade deficits upwards of $1 trillion per year, which again is an inflationary policy because in order to fund those deficits, we have to issue more treasury bonds. We have to print more money, right? All those goods and services being imported into the United States economy that we're paying for with printed money is more inflation pressure for not only the US, but the rest of the world. Now, when we go to unemployment claims, these, again, are initial unemployment claims. So people who are filing for unemployment for the first time, there we got a $260,000 uh, number for people filing for initial unemployment claims. This is the seventh week in a row that initial unemployment claims have ticked up. 
So if we look at the past seven weeks, more and more people are starting to file for unemployment for the first time. Now, interestingly enough, when we got the non-farm payroll numbers that were released on Friday, we had a, a substantial beat on the expectation. The expectation was that for the month of July, the economy was going to add 250,000 jobs. Instead, the economy added 528,000 new jobs in the month of July, beating the expectation by more than twice the amount. It was, it's been a very long time since we've seen a jobs number beat the expectation by twice the amount. And this gave the markets a clear sign to most investors that the economy is going to recover quickly from this recession we're in, that the recession is going to be over by the end of the third quarter, and that it's all sunshine and rainbows from here. Now, I want to break down the job data because it's important to look where the jobs are added and also how unemployment is being affected. Uh, and But before I do that, I just want to also uh, say that the unemployment rate, which was at 3.6% the prior month, fell to 3.5%. So we saw a slight tick down in the unemployment rate. But what's more notable is that labor force participation also declined to 62.1%. So you might ask yourself, how could the unemployment rate decrease while the labor force participation rate simultaneously decreases? And how can the labor force participation rate decrease if we just added 528,000 new jobs into the economy? Well, there's a couple things that are going on here. But one, it's very important to understand how unemployment statistics are actually collected. When you have workers who are unemployed for more than a year, once you're unemployed for more than a year, you now are considered a discouraged worker. So in other words, if you lost your job a year ago today, for the past year, you would have been considered to be unemployed. But now that today you've been unemployed for a year, you are now considered a discouraged worker and you are now no longer included in the unemployment percentage. And so therefore, the fact that you're unemployed, but you want to be employed is not included in the labor statistics. So I think that with labor force participation declining, meaning less people are actually participating in the job market, but unemployment percentages coming down means that all we have is a bunch of people that have been unemployed for a year or more now that are no longer included in the unemployment rate. So just because the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5%, which again, in historic terms, that would be maximum employment in the economy, but you have to understand a lot of people are not being captured in that data because they've been unemployed for more than a year now. In fact, a lot of people who lost their jobs in the beginning of the COVID pandemic when the lockdowns occurred, a lot of those people have never gone back to the workplace. And so therefore, they are not considered unemployed anymore because they've been unemployed for more than two years, but still they are not participating in the labor market. They're not helping to provide goods to produce services for people in the economy. And so the fact that unemployment statistics are so low does not mean that the economy is strong. But also, if you look at the breakdown of the non-farm payroll numbers, again, it's very important to look at where the jobs are added in the economy, not just how many jobs are added. But if you look at the breakdown Leisure and hospitality was the biggest gainer of jobs. There we saw an increase of 96,000 jobs. Professional and business services added 89,000 jobs. Healthcare added 70,000 jobs. Government jobs accounted for 57,000 jobs of the non-farm payroll report. And then lastly, construction added 32,000 jobs, manufacturing added 30,000 jobs, and the retail sector, which is really slowing down a lot, only added 22,000 jobs. Again, if you look at the breakdown of this jobs report, leisure and hospitality making up the biggest percentage of it, that is very low paying jobs. And a lot of those jobs are part-time jobs. And 
the biggest portion of the leisure and hospitality uh, part of the jobs report added jobs in restaurants and bars. So again, a lot of those are part-time jobs, and that is also helping to increase the jobs report because what's happening here is a lot of people are taking on second jobs to help make ends meet because inflation is eroding away so much of their disposable income that in order for them to continue to make ends meet and put food on the table, people in the household have to now take on second jobs. So that's why you're having a lot of people getting hired as waiters or waitresses or bartenders, right? It is not good for the economy that people are taking these second jobs because they're very low paying jobs. And what it shows is that inflation is becoming such a problem that the people can no longer deal with it unless they're taking on second jobs. And again, if you look at the breakdown of this, all of these jobs mainly added in leisure and hospitality and professional and business services, right? The real jobs that produce the real goods that we need to slow down inflation, like in construction, manufacturing, mining, the oil industry, those industries are barely adding any jobs. Those are the jobs we need to be adding to start to slow down inflation by getting prices to come down, but we're not adding jobs there. But again, you see a lot of these jobs, again, in the total number for the report, we added 528,000 jobs. But a big percentage of that is part-time jobs for people who need second jobs. Again, that is not evidence of a strong economy. And it reminds me so much of when Obama was president and he first passed the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. What that did was it forced employers to pay any workers they had full-time, more than 40 hours a week, healthcare as part of their compensation. And so what employers instead did is they said, okay, well, instead of employing, say if you had a company employing 100,000 workers that were working full time, what businesses then said is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to cut back on hours for our workers. And instead of having 100,000 full time employees, what we're going to do is we're going to have 200,000 part time employees working the same amount of hours as before, but now we don't have to pay our workers health care. But what that did was it artificially created more jobs because now instead of having those 100,000 jobs in a business, now you have 200,000 jobs, but everyone's working less hours than they otherwise would have been. But so now you had a lot of people, instead of being employed at a full-time job, they were employed at two jobs working two part-time jobs. And Obama claimed credit for a lot of the job creation that occurred for that very reason. But of course, that's not good for the economy. It's artificial, but a politician like Barack Obama could claim that he created a bunch of jobs for that reason without the American public understanding where that job creation came from. A lot of what's going on now, and of course, Joe Biden's been out there celebrating this huge jobs report that just came out on Friday, as well as Wall Street, because no one looks beneath the surface to see where these jobs are being created. But it reminds me so much of what was going on when Obama was president, because Joe Biden is now taking claim for all these jobs being created. Well, the only reason the jobs are being created is because people have to pick up part time work working at a restaurant or a bar or hotel because their job does not pay them enough to make ends meet because of how bad inflation is in the economy. And another reason that I know that is because we also got out average hourly earnings month over month on Friday. There we were expecting a 0.3% increase. Instead, we got a 0.5% increase. So wages month over month went up a half a percent. But if you look at the total uh, gain for average hourly earnings, dating back to last year, year over year, average hourly earnings have increased by 5.2%. Now, again, that is not good, even though economists say that it is, because the cost of living has increased by double or triple that amount for most people. So if you look at the CPI, the last number that came out year over year, the consumer price index shows that consumer prices have increased by 9.1%, but people's wages have only increased by 5.2%. So in other words, workers are making 50% less this year than they were last year, 
relative their earnings relative to what they have to buy to make ends meet. So again, that is why people are picking up secondary part-time jobs because they don't make enough real wages to make ends meet because real wages are declining drastically due to inflation. And so therefore they're having to pick up secondary work to try and make ends meet. Now, one other point with the average hourly earnings is every month that we get an increase in these average hourly earnings, that means there's more inflation pressure in the pipeline. Because if costs for labor just went up a half a percent last month, that is a half a percent for a lot of major businesses that is going to have to be passed on to the consumer. Like I'm listening the last couple weeks, a lot of notable CEOs, just to name a few, the CEO of Walmart, McDonald's, and Chipotle all came out and said that they're going to start ramming more price increases through to the consumer because they have their costs, again, like average hourly earnings, are continuing to increase. And in order to sustain their current profitability, those added costs are have to get passed on to the customer. And it's a very important point to make. There are a few prices in the economy that go up and down. If you think of oil or copper or lumber, mainly you think of commodities, those prices do adjust up and down. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. But there are certain prices in the economy that once they go up, they never come back down. So if you think about the cost of labor, if McDonald's is paying their workers $16 an hour this year, but they were paying them $15 an hour last year, those costs are never coming back down. It's not like next year, McDonald's is going to come out and say, okay, now we're going to reduce your earnings to $15 an hour. No, once costs get raised for labor, they never go back down. Same thing with rent. Once rent increases occur, landlords never go back to their tenants the following year and offer to drop the rent prices, right? So there are certain prices in the economy that once they go up, they become embedded in the economy. And that's what I've been talking about. Inflation can become embedded in the economy very quickly. And again, as labor costs go up, that means that price increases have to go up across the board in all industries because labor costs in every industry are skyrocketing dramatically. And so therefore, that means that the cost of production of goods and services is going up. And that means that businesses have to pass those added costs onto the consumer, onto the customer. They're not going to eat those costs. Again, another major example of this that I covered last week was in Newmont Mining, the gold producer, the only gold producer in the S&P 500, when they reported earnings, they reported that their labor costs have increased by 33% year over year. That is a major inflation pressure throughout the economy. And it's not something that is only relative to the gold mining industry. Again, it's relative to every industry in the economy. If every business is seeing their costs for labor increase from 20 to 30 to 40%, that means additional costs of 20 to 30 to 40% are in the pipeline to get passed down to the consumer. And that is why, again, the consumer continues to stretch to make ends meet. That's why the consumer needs to have two jobs in order to make ends meet for a household. In some households, you have two people both working two, one full-time job each and one part-time job each. And so you got four jobs in one household just for Americans to be able to make ends meet because inflation is so bad. And Another reason I know that Americans are stretching to make ends meet is because on Friday afternoon, after the release of the non-form payrolls, we got the release of the consumer credit numbers month over month. Now, there we were expecting a pretty substantial increase in consumer credit. We were expecting $25 billion of additional consumer credit month over month. Instead, what we got was a huge increase in consumer credit of $40.2 billion month over month. So we came in well above expectations. And again, consumer credit continues to rise. If you look at the numbers overall, we're now at a record high $16 trillion of debt in the economy. Never been this high. But if you break the consumer credit numbers down even further, 
Number of consumers with credit cards and personal loans reached record highs. Delinquencies are back to pre-pandemic levels. So not only are consumers starting to take on much more debt, but they're also starting to default on their credit card payments, on their personal loan payments. Again, we heard from AT&T two weeks ago when they reported earnings, they reported a substantial number of their customers are starting to fall behind on their phone bills. Why are people falling behind on their phone bills if the economy is doing so well? It's because the economy is not doing well. The economy is a train wreck. Everyone is stretching to make ends meet. People have to choose what bills they can and can't pay because the economy is a complete disaster. Look at the tally of credit cards. Credit cards exceeded 500 million over the entire economy for the first time ever. And more importantly, 233 million new credit cards were opened in the second quarter alone. So we have 500 million credit cards across the economy. 233 million of those are from this past quarter. So this number is rising exponentially. This is the biggest increase in credit card users and credit cards opened in the economy since 2008, the great financial crisis, right? Credit card balances jumped 13% in the second quarter, which was the largest year-over-year increase in 20 years. And the U.S. household savings rate is at its lowest level since 2007. So again, all bad news on the economy. Why are consumers opening 233 million new credit cards in the second quarter? Because inflation is so bad, they can't make ends meet. They have to choose. Do I buy food or do I buy energy or do I pay my rent or do I pay my phone bill, right? Americans don't have enough income to cover all their expenses. So the only way they can make it is they got to swipe the credit card. And again, that can only last so long. But what this again proves is what I've been saying. The Federal Reserve is not raising interest rates high enough to create demand destruction. If you're going to stop inflation once it's already out, once the cat's out of the bag, You need serious, serious rate increases in interest rates to stop people from taking on new debt to spend more money in the economy, right? Because what makes prices go up is after money has been printed and the velocity of money starts to pick up in the economy and dollars turn over more quickly, that gives businesses the leverage to start raising their prices. So what you have to do is you have to flip that switch off. You have to Make it so that consumers cannot spend as much money. Now, again, consumers spend their earnings and they also spend on credit. And one person's spending is another person's income. So what you have to do is you have to raise interest rates to a high enough level to where Americans can no longer apply for 233 million new credit cards within a three-month time period. Because if as long as Americans can continue to apply and get approved for new credit cards, because interest rates are low and credit conditions are so loose, people are going to continue to spend on things to buy buy discretionary items, to go on vacation, to take a flight, to stay at a hotel, to eat at a restaurant. And as long as people are continuing to spend that additional credit, not money, but additional credit, businesses can keep raising their prices because as long as that credit stays available for Americans, then businesses can get away with those price increases. And again, the Federal Reserve is not doing enough to slow down the consumer from spending money, as evidenced in the consumer credit month-over-month numbers, but investors remain oblivious to the fact that inflation is going to continue to skyrocket out of control. And as I've been saying, as conditions tighten a little bit from interest rates going up a little bit, People will be able to spend less money. Again, these consumer credit numbers show how dependent consumer spending and the economy is on cheap credit. Because again, remember, 70% of the economy is the consumer spending. And one person's spending is another person's income. So if you take away all this, this availability for debt, there is no more spending in the economy which means a lot of workers have to get laid off because a lot of businesses are going to go out of business or are going to have to decline their workforce dramatically. And so that means people have less income coming in, which makes them even more reliant on debt. But if interest rates go up, 
that debt is no longer available. That is why I know the Federal Reserve is not going to raise interest rates enough to create the demand destruction necessary to fight inflation, because doing so would not has doing so has already put the economy in recession. We've raised interest rates again this year from zero to two and a half percent. We're already in a recession. So again, imagine if we now raise rates from two and a half percent to five percent. That's going to put the economy in an even deeper recession. We raise then from five percent to seven and a half percent. The economy would again now be in a very severe recession. But again, interest rates, even at that point, still wouldn't be higher than the current rate of inflation. Again, you we've never seen inflation rise above 5% and then simultaneously come back down to 2% or less without the federal funds rate, the starting interest rate in the economy, going higher than the current rate of inflation, which is measured at a 9.1% year-over-year increase. And if you even look at the annualized rate, the last inflation data we got showed an annualized inflation rate of 15.6%. And again, that's in an economy where average hourly earnings have only gone up by 5.2%, which is why Americans continue to swipe their 500 million credit cards to make ends meet. Now, again, inflation is here to stay, even if it stops accelerating. Because like I said, once the cat gets out of the bag on inflation, you can't ever put it back in the bag. That's why it's important for the Federal Reserve to move quickly to fight inflation. And they're not doing that because the higher labor costs go, the more embedded inflation becomes in the economy and the higher labor costs go, the higher the cost of everything else has to be raised so that businesses can make up those added costs. And if consumers are struggling to make ends meet this year, with inflation being embedded and here to stay, that means that consumers are going to struggle to make ends meet every year for the foreseeable future. Because again, if you go to McDonald's to buy a Big Mac, the price of that Big Mac is never coming back down. The rate of increase may slow, but it's never coming back down to pre-pandemic levels because again, the inflation is out in the economy and it is there to stay because wages have increased, inflation expectations have increased. And again, even the numbers we're seeing in the consumer price index, the producer price index, the personal expenditures consumption index are all still continuing to increase. We have absolutely no signs that peak inflation is here. And that is why the stock market did not rally from this strong jobs report on Friday, because the strong jobs report and especially the strong consumer spending numbers show that the Federal Reserve has a lot more work to do in regards to its inflation fight, which means that the markets are now starting to price in higher interest rate expectations in the future. But again, where the markets have it wrong is those higher interest rate interest rates are never coming because the Federal Reserve is not going to raise interest rates high enough to actually create demand destruction. They will continue to raise them as long as they can operate under the false sense of a strong economy and a strong labor market. But once the labor market starts to actually deteriorate and the recession gets worse and businesses go out of business, businesses start laying off workers, the Federal Reserve's immediately going to have to stop raising interest rates and to, and start stimulating the economy again. Again, the Federal Reserve has never even raised interest rates going into a recession. So every time interest rates go higher, they're not going to do anything to slow down inflation, but they are what they are going to do is they're going to work to slow down the economy even more. Now, with that, one thing I wanted to cover this week, we got DoorDash reported earnings. I've been following this stock very closely, so I wanted to comment on it. Now, right after the earnings report, the stock initially popped 18% in the after-hours session on notes that revenues beat expectations and total orders have increased by 23% year over year. Now, despite both of those positive notes, the stock managed to somehow miss its earnings expectations by a large margin. The stock posted an earnings per share, or I guess you could say losses per share, of $0.72 cents versus the expected loss of $0.41 cents per share. So their revenues increased substantially year over year, yet their earnings missed by almost double the expectation. 
Now, for one, it's a very poor sign whenever a company beats on revenue guidance, but it actually misses even worse on earnings expectations for the bottom line. So I have to tell you, you know, when a company reports a wide beat on revenues and it misses on bottom line profits, it's a very bad look moving forward for the company. But this shows me that DoorDash is underperforming from a business management standpoint when times are good for their business. So can you imagine how their business is going to perform when times are bad? Now, one of the things I want to point out, though, is the re- one of the reasons that DoorDash was able to beat on order guidance and revenues is because they were able to hire a lot more drivers. Again, why is DoorDash able to hire a lot more drivers? Because people need those second jobs to make ends meet. It's not enough for someone who's working a full-time job 40 hours a week to make ends meet. So they have to work jobs like DoorDash and Uber and Lyft on the side to try and bring in extra disposable income to pay their bills. So that's one of the short-term benefits for DoorDash. But again, it shows the economy is weakening dramatically. Now, again, a side note here, credit card debt is skyrocketing to new highs, right? Credit card spending hitting its highest level in 20 years. And the savings rate for U.S. households is at its lowest levels since the 2008 financial crisis. So there's obviously a lot of spending that is driving this business that people can't afford, but they're continuing to put it on credit cards. Again, this is as good as the company is going to get as far as its revenues are concerned, yet they can't, they're losing 72 cents per share, much more than the analysts initially expected. Now, again, their inability to control costs like customer acquisition costs, marketing costs, uh, their labor costs are going up much higher as well. That is going to be what really hurts the company moving forward. And again, as consumers continue to stretch to make ends meet, eventually they're going to stop buying this discretionary stuff like food delivery. They're just going to say, you know, the hell with it. I'm going to go pick up my own food because I can't afford to pay a $20 delivery fee just to have the food bought to me. Because again, people are spending way too much money on food, energy, rent, insurance, you name it. Everything is too expensive. That is why credit card is skyrocketing out of control. And that is why the jobs report, at least the headline number was so strong because everyone is picking up part-time jobs at restaurants, bars, DoorDash, Uber, and you name it. But one point I would make on that though is also Google announced this week that they're going to be cutting costs on employees for uh, employee spending. So if you don't know, Google actually has a very beneficial uh, employee environment. In other words, they allow employees to spend money and expense it to the company on things like uh, food delivery and dry cleaning services and whatnot. Well, they just mentioned that they're no longer going to allow employees to expense lunch deliveries for uh, to the company. So again, a lot of DoorDash profits are, well, losses, but a lot of their revenues are probably coming from people who are working at these tech giants like Google and Facebook and Apple expensing those lunches to the job site. And that is going away. So that means a lot of spending for these companies is going to go away as well. And again, the company still remains extremely expensive. DoorDash trades at five times sales. They've never earned a profit. They couldn't earn a profit during the pandemic, which should really tell you that they'll never be able to earn a profit. And again, the problem is you can't even scale the business. The only way they can grow the business is they have to hire more drivers because drivers can only do so many deliveries per hour. And it's not as if they hire more drivers and it makes their company more efficient. No, the Delivery costs are the same for every delivery, regardless of how many drivers they hire. But again, they're going to have to start cutting drivers rather than hiring them soon, because again, most people don't have the money to be able to afford these types of services anymore. And so I think DoorDash is still a great short here, uh, and that's why I stay short. Now, again, if you move to other companies in the market, One of the reasons that the S&P 500 has recovered about 8% of its losses in this bear market is because the major stocks that make up that index, which would be Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet, uh, and you can also throw Amazon in that mix as well, a lot of those stocks are up substantially 
over the past month. Over the past month, Apple is up 20%, right? Microsoft is up 8%, Alphabet is up 8.5%, and Amazon is up 23%. So that accounts for a lot of the recent move in the S&P 500 off the lows. Again, if businesses like Google are going to start cutting back on costs by making tighter situations for their employees. That shows that they are preparing for a more severe recession than most investors and traders expect on Wall Street. But what that tells me is if Google and Apple and Microsoft are cutting back on corporate spending, that means a lot of small businesses are definitely going to have to cut back on spending. And a lot of the smaller publicly traded companies are going to have to cut back on spending as well. One of the areas of the market that has been performing so well in the past several years has been the cloud software business. And all the companies I just mentioned, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Amazon, all have the significant portions of their earnings coming from their cloud business. Now, again, if you don't know, the cloud business is where a lot of small and big corporations spend money for data analytics to grow their businesses and for marketing purposes. And again, if businesses are going to have to start cutting their costs to prepare for a deeper recession than people realize is coming, that means a lot of these stocks are going to get hit hard because cloud spending is going to decrease and that means their revenues are going to decrease. And so there's a lot of systemic risk in the markets because the S&P 500 has become so heavily weighted and concentrated in these stocks. Now, again, addressing systemic risk here, if you look at the top six stocks in the S&P 500, right, and I'm leaving out Berkshire Hathaway because that is one of the top stocks in the S&P 500, but if you just look at the following six stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Tesla, and NVIDIA, those stocks those six stocks together make up 25% of the entire S&P 500. So out of the 500 stocks that are contained in the S&P 500, six of them make up 25% of the entire index. So if you buy the S&P 500, that's supposed to be a great means of having a diversified investment. But what diversification is being achieved by the S&P 500 if 6% of the entire 500 stock, or if 25% of the entire 500 stocks is comprised in just six different stocks. And by the way, all of those stocks operate businesses in similar areas. Again, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon all derive most of their revenues from the cloud business. Now, yes, of course, Apple doesn't have the cloud business, but Microsoft, Google, and Amazon have that those businesses. And yes, they have other avenues from which they generate revenues, but a big portion of their revenues come from the cloud business. Again, if you look at Apple, yes, they have the greatest brand in the world. They're probably the greatest company in the world, but they sell a discretionary product in cell phones. And how in, in a recession, how many people are going to continue to update their cell phone every single year? Probably not as many as have done in the past decade. And even if you look at Apple's most recent earnings report, they reported a slowdown in Mac purchases. Now, iPhone sales kept up as well as spending on the App Store. But again, I expect both of those spending to go down as we head deeper into this recession and consumers stretch even more to make ends meet. Again, Tesla sells a discretionary product. They're very uh, dependent on the consumer's health being stable uh, and they're very dependent on low interest rates so people can borrow tons of money to buy their vehicles. And NVIDIA is also linked to the broad health of the overall economy. But there, the point is here, there is a ton of systemic risk in the S&P 500. Anyone who is buying this index, either for themselves or for clients, to try and get them invested in a diversified way is failing to be diversified because, again, you have 25% of the entire market is weighted in just six stocks, and those six stocks are all in very highly correlated businesses that perform very similar to one another. And so, therefore, again, cloud spending goes, this entire market can go. Apple itself is 7% of the entire S&P 500 index. 
they have one bad earnings quarter, that could be enough to take the entire stock market down to a new leg in this bear market. Again, there's a lot of systemic risk here and people continue to ignore the systemic risk. And a lot of people who believe they're diversified in their investments have absolutely no diversification whatsoever. Now, one of the places I think you can do, use to diversify very well would be in the defense industry. Now, a lot of these stocks that I'm going to mention here are not re investment recommendations. Nothing I mention on this podcast is an investment recommendation. If you invest money based on a podcast that you listen to, you are surely going to lose money. So do your own independent research. But this is just to drive a point home and uh, give some thoughts on where you can start to look. But look at the defense industry. Now I'm looking at L3 Harris Technologies, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, and Raytheon. If you look at the performance of these stocks over the past six months, they are up 24, 20, 14, and 8% respectively. That is in a year where the market is down 20% on the lows and it continues to be down 12% even after the recent bounce off those lows. So the defense sector is doing very well. And that's one because with the increased geopolitical concerns in the world, there's a lot more government spending being directed towards this sector. The other part of these businesses that I like is that their main customer is the U.S. federal government who has a printing press and can pay whatever prices they want for these companies. But again, these companies are good dividend paying stocks. They're value oriented stocks and they will do very well even if interest rates rise dramatically from here. But if you, again, look at most of the stocks that are performing relatively well compared to the broad market, it's CVS, Waste Management, McDonald's, Kroger, Tyson Foods, Hormel Foods, Freeport McMoran, uh, Nestle, Kraft Heinz. Why are these stocks all performing well compared to the rest of the broader markets? Well, because, again, they sell products and services that people need they don't sell products and services that people want. And so as you have consumer disposable income declining dramatically because of inflation, people have to buy the things they need before they buy the things that they want. And so that's why I think a lot of those companies could potentially make very good investments in the future. Because if you look at the markets, again, traders and investors have a lot wrong about what's going on in the market. For one, again, a lot of investors think that the market and the economy is much stronger than it actually is. A lot of people still refuse to believe we're in a recession, even though we are officially in a recession. A lot of people believe that the consumer is very strong, despite the fact that we just added $40 billion of consumer credit just last month. And despite the fact that consumers are opening 233 million credit cards in the past three months. But my point is, is that because investors and traders are so wrong on the strength of the economy and they are so wrong on the idea that inflation is about to slow down dramatically, a lot of assets are being mispriced in this market. A lot of these consumer staple stocks, healthcare stocks, defense stocks, oil stocks, agriculture stocks, right? They are being tremendously undervalued because a lot of people are not buying defensive names because they think the economy is strong and they think inflation is about to go away. That's why people have been buying Apple, buying Microsoft, buying Google. They think that both the economy is strong, but the Fed is somehow going to break the back of inflation. And so no need to worry about interest rates rising because inflation is going to go away on its own and the economy is strong and nothing to worry about. Again, investors couldn't have this more wrong. The people I see on CNBC every day couldn't have this more wrong. Inflation, as I've said, is here to stay. All the data shows that. And believe it or not, all the data shows that inflation is actually going to continue to accelerate as we move into the fall and winter months. Again, the CPI, which we get the new CPI reading this week, by the way, but the CPI, the PPI, the PCE, Inflation expectations and average hourly earnings, all gauges of inflation are at all time highs and they've continued to accelerate each of the past six months. Now, as you'll recall in past episodes, what I've said on the podcast is that 
just because we have a recession, that does not mean inflation is going to slow down. See, a lot of people on CNBC have been saying, if we have a recession, that will be good in the sense that it will break the back of inflation and it will force consumer prices to start to come down. Well, we've officially been in recession for six months. The economy has been contracting for six months in a row. And during that six month period, in Inflation and consumer prices continue to accelerate each of those six months, again, proving that I was right in saying that inflation won't be caused to go down because of a recession. And in fact, if you understand anything about economics, you'd understand that as a recession gets worse and more people get laid off from their jobs, more businesses go out of business, inflation actually gets worse for the long term because you have less people working productively to produce goods and services, which means that prices have to go up from a limited supply. So again, inflation is not going away. We are in recession. The recession's going to get worse. Inflation's going to get worse. And a lot of assets in this market, including most value stocks that are consumer staple stocks, are completely mispriced. What is also mispriced is bonds. The bond market reacted very negatively to this jobs report because we had a strong jobs report. Again, people think that now the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates to stop prices from accelerating. And so traders immediately sold bonds and that selling of bonds caused interest rates to rise. You look on the 10 year, we're now back to two spot seven, eight on interest rates on the 10 year treasury. But again, if you're going to buy treasury bonds here. The six-month treasury bill pays 3% interest, and the U.S. 10-year treasury bill pays 2.78% interest. So we continue to have huge inversions in the bond market, which again is a huge flashing sign that we are in a very severe recession. But if you are going to buy any type of bonds across the curve, whether it's a six-month bond, a one-year bond, a 30-year bond, a 10-year bond, it doesn't matter. They are all completely mispriced. Bonds are basically return-free risk because you're getting paid a much lower rate of interest than what the inflation rate is, meaning that once you account for inflation, you have massive losses in the coupons you're collecting by owning these bonds. And there is tons of interest rate risk and inflation risk in the bond market. And again, anyone who is jumping at the opportunity to buy I bonds at very high interest rates or to get six month treasury bills that are paying 3%, they are taking a huge amount of risk that they don't even understand because again, these assets have a ton of interest rate and a ton of inflation risk. And the bond market is being completely mispriced. Bonds are so overpriced here. It is not even fathomable to want to buy them. And especially if you can buy the types of businesses that I just mentioned that have the purchasing power to pass costs onto their customers, right? So again, the reason bonds are not a good hedge against inflation is because even if you're getting, say, for example, you buy the uh, you buy a 10-year government bond, it pays 2.7% interest right now per year. So if you're getting 2.7% rate of return in interest, but inflation is 9%. So the return that you're getting is 9% less valuable. That means you have a real rate of return of negative 7%. There is no reason to purposely lock in an investment that pays you a negative 7% rate of return, and that return can't increase over time. Now, if you own a business, and again, not recommending any any of these as investment advice, But if you own Procter & Gamble, for example, that sells household goods or Johnson & Johnson sells household goods and healthcare products, those businesses sell products that people need. So if you take, even if you look at Kraft Heinz, right? Kraft Heinz sells products that people need. So if Kraft Heinz experiences 20% of inflation because of what's going on in the economy, So let's say you take one of their food products like uh, ketchup or mac and cheese. If it costs 20% more for Kraft Heinz to produce their ketchup because of inflation, 
they can easily increase the cost of their catch-up by 20% to pass that added cost onto the customer, and it won't have an impact on their sales volume because, again, they sell products that people absolutely have to buy. People don't have a choice. They have to buy food. They have to buy medicine. They have to buy commodities like energy, right? People don't have a choice to buy these products, which is why these are the real inflation hedges. Real estate, again, is not the best inflation hedge, in my opinion, because yes, you can increase your rent to your tenants, but as you own a, real, a piece of real estate in an inflationary environment, all of your costs to maintain that real estate are going to go up as well, and you might not be able to pass on the full extent of those cost increases onto your tenants in the form of rent without having your tenants default on their rent payments. So there's a limit to how high a landlord can raise their rent and not have that affect their uh, rental income because, again, you have to worry about people defaulting on the rent. But again, if Procter & Gamble increases the cost of their laundry detergent, people are going to buy the laundry detergent anyway, right? If Nestle increased the cost of their coffee creamer, people are buying that coffee creamer anyway. If Hormel Foods increases the cost of the peanuts that they produce, people are going to buy those peanuts anyway because they don't have a choice. And so a lot of the times what a lot of these companies will do, like it or not, is if they see an increase in inflation of, say, 15 percent, they might use that as an opportunity to raise their prices by 20 percent because they can blame the rate, the, the increases in their cost, their uh, prices on their increases in cost, and they can actually expand their profit margins. Now, you might not like when a company does that, but the fact of the matter is these companies are able to do it because, again, they pass higher costs onto the customer. And that's why if you own these companies, they're able to produce higher profits in an inflationary environment, and they're able to pass those higher profits onto their shareholders in the form of higher dividends. And as their earnings continue to increase in an inflationary environment, typically their stock prices increase as well. So that's, again, where a lot of the great buys are right now. A lot of these value stocks have suffered in the past couple months because people believe inflation is going to go away. And so they've been selling value stocks and buying Apple and Microsoft and Google. They have it all wrong. Investors and traders are completely offsides on this trade here because nobody understands what's really going on in the economy. And that is why we have some lifetime buying opportunities and again some of these sectors and if you look at consumer staples healthcare defense oil stocks uh, gold stocks agriculture stocks there are tons of great buys and opportunities in all these stocks you look at chevron it's down eight percent over the last month exxon mobile down 15 percent off the highs the gdx which is the gold miner etf down 23 percent just this month alone and take a look at this, the inflation ETF, INFL, which is an ETF of a basket of stocks of companies that are supposed to benefit from inflation. That ETF is down 4% in the past three months, and it's flat over the past year. So imagine that we have the highest inflation in US history. Inflation is 9.1% on a year over year basis, 15.6% on an annualized basis. And really, it's 20% if you forget the government measured numbers and you look at reality of how prices are going up, yet nobody is buying this inflation ETF because again, as I mentioned, traders, investors just don't get what's going on. They think there's no inflation to worry about because they think inflation's about to stop. They think that the economy is strong. And so they've been buying the more speculative risk assets like the ones in the ARK Innovation Fund or the Triple Qs. And that's why the market has recovered somewhat off the lows. But soon enough, people are going to understand that they need to be in these more value-oriented inflation hedges rather than the growth-oriented stocks when there's no growth that's going to be there in the future because the economy is in a long and severe recession. So again, if you're one of the many Americans that's struggling to make ends meet, you see inflation all over the place, you see how weak the economy really is. You need to take this time to prepare for a long and severe recession where inflation is going to continue to get worse and worse. You need to start preparing to buy consumer staple stocks, get out of overpriced momentum stocks. If you've bought a lot of the ARC stocks or 
the Teslas or the uh, the Fang names in the past couple months. Use this opportunity here to sell them at higher prices now. Sell your bonds if you own any. And if you have any extra cash, you got to get it invested in the market. You cannot let your extra cash sit in the bank and rot away to inflation. Again, you have to own a lot of these consumer staple companies like the ones that I just mentioned. But if you want some guidance and you want some help on the best way to do this, subscribe to my daily newsletter. You can get it. it we send it out every every day, Monday through Friday, before the market opens. You can subscribe at truenorthmarketresearch.substack.com. It's free to subscribe, but if you want the full content produced in the newsletter, it is $10 a month. But again, you get five newsletters a week, and it goes very in-depth on how you can set your portfolio up to benefit from what's going on in the economy. And you can also see what's really going on with economic data. We break it down very clearly in those newsletters, and it keeps you well-informed and up-to-date. The best part of it is it's a quick read. I get a lot of information in there. It's very quick to read it. You can read it. It takes five to 10 minutes to read it. You can read it. Uh, in the morning, uh, whenever, but it it gives you what you need to know about the economy and the markets and what's going on in the investment world. And I'm going to start putting out my investment analysis on places in the market, particularly where you can be invested to hedge against inflation and survive this upcoming recession with minimal pain in the newsletter. And again, if you're more interested in working with a financial advisor, you can email me at truenorthinternationalpartners at gmail.com and we can set up a time to talk and discuss the best way for you to get positioned in this current market environment. The time to act is now. Don't wait to take the necessary steps and get your money in order before it's too late.